mind. So there's uh, individuals thinking about how do we make sure that we've got the right nutrition? How do we deal with the psychological stress and strain of you know, the darkness, the extreme cold weather, you know, the difficulty sleeping? Our weapon systems that we use in Iraq and Afghanistan don't work the same way there. Our ways of carrying ammunition, we cannot carry enough ammunition for sustained firefights. Uh, the lubricants we use in our weapons do not work at negative 30 degrees. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and this is a special episode that we brought in a guest host for. Dr. Ryan Burke is an MWI fellow and the co-director of Project 6633, which we recently launched to explore the topic of polar security. He had the opportunity to sit down for a conversation with Colonel Brian Rowan and Captain Barrett Martin. Colonel Rowan is the commander of 10th Special Forces Group, and Captain Martin is one of the officers assigned to the group. The U.S. Army's Special Forces groups are largely oriented towards specific regions, and 10th Group has a particular focus on Europe, which means they have a natural organizational interest in the Arctic region. As you'll hear Colonel Rowan and Captain Martin explain in this conversation, though, that interest is growing. They explain why, and they talk about some of the unique challenges posed by such an extreme environment. Before we get to the conversation, really quickly, just a couple notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, find it on your favorite podcast app. And if you have a second, please leave a rating or give it a review, which really helps us reach new listeners. And second, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, 10th Special Forces Group, or any part of the Army or U.S. government. All right, here's Project 6633 co-director Ryan Burke with this episode of the MWI podcast. everybody listening uh, at home, thank you for joining us. My name is Ryan Burke. I'm the co-director of Project 6633. I'm also an associate professor at the U.S. Air Force Academy's Department of Military and Strategic Studies. I am down at the 10th Special Forces Group headquarters. I'm sitting here with the group commander of 10th Special Forces Group, Colonel Brian Rowan. I'm also sitting here with, with the support company commander of 2nd Battalion 10th Special Forces Group, uh, Captain Barrett Martin, gentlemen, thank you for joining me for this this podcast. We really appreciate it. Got a lot of good things to uh, to engage with. So hopefully uh, you're ready to go. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank All you. right. So um, what we're going to do is let's start big picture and let's start getting into the weeds of some of these things. So, uh, Colonel, I'll, I'll go to you for the first uh, first round of questions. Uh, tell us a little bit about 10 Special Forces Group. What is the mission of the group, and how long have you been here, and what is your general background? So the uh, 10 Special Forces Group was actually established in 1952. It was the, the first Special Forces Group established, and it was established in Europe specifically to counter uh, Soviet aggression or potential aggression. And so really that it continues to be our mission today, except now it's you know, focused on Russian aggression or you know expansionism or any of their efforts. And so I've been with 10 Special Forces Group now for nearly 20 years, uh, on and off since 2002, uh, and most recently here as the, uh, the group commander since uh, summer of 2019. All right, so you've been here for uh, for quite a while, um, Captain uh, Bar- or, Excuse me, Captain Martin. Excuse me. Um, how long have you been here, and uh, what do you what do you do here? To use an office space reference, what would you say <laughs> you do here? Yes, sir. I, I talk to the people. Uh, All right, so, no, there you I've, go. I've only been in tenth group for three years now. Uh, started out as an infantry officer here on Carson and Fourth ID, then transitioned to Special Forces. So ten years in the Army, three years here in Ten Special Forces Group. Currently, the Battalion Support Company Commander. 
of 2nd Battalion, 10 Special Forces Group. Uh, my role there is to support all functions for not just the battalion staff within 2nd Battalion, but as well as all of the companies and really the ODAs to support okay. all their training needs and requirements that they may have. Okay. Uh, however, I'm sitting here today because my former job was as the detachment commander of an ODA that went to the high north uh, this time last year and operated in both Sweden and Norway and previously had no experience doing that. And since then, uh, as you're sitting here today, the Arctic has kind of taken off in priority uh, and I'm one of the conduits for that within group. Okay, so that's a great transition point then. So, gentlemen, has the you talk about the UCOM AOR focus for the for 10th group. Has the group always been focused on the Arctic or has UCOM and really the southern elements, the southern latitudes of UCOM really been more of the focus? And, and if so, if you have been focused on the Arctic, how long and, and why? So, 10th group itself has been focused uh, pretty extensively on cold weather training. I wouldn't say necessarily exclusively to the Arctic, uh, but certainly cold weather training in our Location here in Colorado makes it super convenient you know, with uh, the Rockies. Uh, but we do training as well up in Alaska and Montana. Um, I think that the importance of the Arctic uh, has really grown over the past few years uh, as we've seen you know, the, the ice caps melting there uh, and allowing for more shipping through there. Uh, we've seen an increased uh, level of activity and with that you know, military interest uh, in, the, in the north, uh, particularly in the Arctic. So, Captain Martin, you, uh, you've obviously spent some time up in uh, north of 66 degrees, and uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your experiences operating up there. You said you were in, uh, in Sweden uh, last March, is that correct? Uh, correct, last January through March. Okay. Wow. Uh, so we did a six-week training progression mm-hmm. uh, in Sweden at their Subarctic Warfare Training Center in Arvijar, mm-hmm. Sweden, mm-hmm. which is just below uh, the Arctic Circle. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we did uh, border crossing into Norway to participate in exercise cold response. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is right when COVID kicked off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the exercise didn't go through as planned. However, we did get uh, 10 to 12 days there of training with the Norwegian Special Operations um, north of the Arctic Circle mm-hmm. in that environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, my team had about four days of training prior to that deployment in a cold weather environment. So we were coming off of two back-to-back rotations to Afghanistan and then, hey, shift focus. And now we need to go to the Arctic and operate there. So I'd say the point of our mission there was really as a um, a foundation for learning for the battalion and the group as we transition from the global war on terror back to our sole focus on UCOM with the Arctic as one of the uh, new innovative lines of effort that we see is, is progressing within the group. So you you said something interesting. You said you talked about the transition between the the GWAD and, and operating in the CENTCOM AOR and, and principally Iraq and Afghanistan for the last better part of the last 20 years. So, Colonel, to my understanding, you have, as the group commander, you've put a kind of a renewed, if you will, emphasis on the Arctic within the UCOM AOR. Tell us a little bit about why, given some of the, the past history of your command focus and this group's focus, and why the Arctic and why now? Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple of pieces with that. First, you know, the transition from the GWAT, as you mentioned, uh, has largely been driven by the new national defense strategy. And so looking at how do we prepare to compete with or go to conflict against uh, China, Russia, uh, and those other uh, NDS threats. Uh, for us, as we've looked at the Arctic, um, given it's in our backyard uh, with the UCOM and then here, uh, First Special Forces Command has basically delegated that area to us uh, for its respon- uh, for responsibility. The uh, 
the Arctic itself is important, you know, particularly for Yukon because so many NATO partners are there. You know, there's five of us there, including the U.S. Uh, we've got our two partners with Sweden and Finland. And, of course, you know, with uh, Russia having so much presence in the Arctic there uh, by virtue of their position in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, it's, it's a clear lineup for us uh, with the Yukon area. All right, so Captain Martin, tell us a little bit about, I want to go back to some of the things you talked about with regard to operating in the CENTCOM AOR versus operating now in the Arctic region and your experiences. Tell us about some of the, the challenges relative to a traditionally hot weather environment, although we know that there's some elements in northern Afghanistan, even in Iraq, can get cold at certain times of the year, but it doesn't get to the level of extreme cold that we've seen certainly in, in Arctic operations and in polar operations writ large. So tell us, in your experience, some of the challenges with operating in extreme cold weather other environments relative to other areas of the world that you've, you've experienced? Sure. So I think in relation to the Arctic, there's really two big challenges, the first of which is real obvious, so I'll just touch on that, and that is we're going to a near-peer, non-permissive environment. And that's a huge change from a lot of our experiences with GWAT, where we own the battle space, we own communications, we own the sky. We own none of that uh, in a near-peer environment, specifically against adversaries like China and Russia, who are in a global power competition for resources and trade lanes within the Arctic. Uh, the second of which is the capability gaps we have with manning, training, and equipping. Uh, so the capability gaps are something that you cannot realize from sitting here. You have to go there. You have to do it. You have to experience it. Uh, so the, some of the biggest ones that we saw uh, really break down into uh, our survivability as far as the clothes we have, the gear we're issued, and our ability to just operate spend the night and conduct combat operations in temperatures going below negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, then our mobility, how are we getting around in this environment? And not just the mechanisms in which we do that on snowmobile platforms, skis and things like that, um, but also how are we doing counter tracking techniques? Because if you move in a non-permissive environment, you are going to be found, you're going to be killed. Uh, and then our lethality. Our weapon systems that we use in Iraq and Afghanistan don't work the same way there. Our ways of carrying ammunition, we cannot carry enough ammunition for sustained firefights. Uh, the lubricants we use in our weapons do not work at negative 30 degrees. Uh, doing cold or shots with our sniper weapon systems, things like that. And then finally, and this goes back in survivability, is medical. Uh, in the GWAT fight, there's what's called the golden hour, where if someone is wounded, you have one hour to get them to uh, level two or level three care for their survivability. If someone is wounded in the Arctic, there is no medevac coming. Uh, you will do your best to sustain them with what you have, but it's, a, it's really a harsh reality there. Uh, and then the other big thing is how do we communicate? Line of sight communications is too dangerous with near peer. Um, they're going to be able to detect exactly where that is, uh, sometimes within minutes, and be able to send fires in our direction. Uh, SATCOM does not work north of the Arctic Circle because the approach angle for SATCOM is too shallow and we can't get it over the terrain. Uh, the effects of Aurora Borealis in the wintertime uh, gives us about a two-hour window for high-frequency waveform communication sometimes. And really, it's a change of thinking from not just the equipment capability gaps that we have, but also expectation management for our command, our headquarters, and the military writ large. Commanders are used to um, sit reps hourly, daily. That's no longer going to be the case. You're looking at daily at the most, sometimes a weekly sit rep on when you can get communications up and out uh, without being a detriment to yourself. Um, additionally, things like battery consumption plans. If you turn on a radio in the Arctic, it, a radio that would last you 12 hours normally might last you four hours, and that's if the battery is next to your body underneath 
all of your equipment. So if, if you start thinking through the little details like that, that's something that you can only flesh out when you're up there learning it the hard way. And that's something that me and my team uh, really took to heart up there and tried to bring back as lessons learned because we simply cannot, cannot replicate that here in the Kona space. We can do our best in Colorado and the Rockies, but we don't have uh, those wet, cold conditions like we do up in the Arctic. Um, and then even in Alaska, what we're lacking there is our foundation, which is the partnered approach. We go by with and through our partner force. Never was there a day where my team was conducting unilateral training up there. We were working with the Swedes, we were working with the Norwegians, we are working with the Home Guard, because they are the people that were born and raised in that environment. And anything that we do up there now or in the future, we have to rely on utilizing the partnered approach. That's how we're built and that's how we have to continue to operate in that environment. So the short version of, of all of that, which is tremendous insight to the challenges of extreme cold weather operations is it's, it's tough, right? In, in, a really, in a really elementary way to say it, we can't, even, we can't even imagine, without having experienced it ourselves, right? we cannot even imagine the immense challenges that go into not only operating in a cold weather environment, but then sustaining operations. And as you mentioned, through survivability, mobility, sustainability, lethality, right, and all the other little elements that we think of as the micro-tactical level examples of, of keeping operations going and maintaining military effectiveness, and everything is, is more challenging in the cold, right? The, the phrase that we hear often is, is everything in the Arctic is trying to kill you, and that's that's a real that's a real thing. So, Colonel, I'm going to go back to you then with with regard to what uh, with what Captain Martin said. So we, he outlined the immense challenges that that you all face operating in this kind of environment. So tell us a little bit about then why you as a as a command have sponsored this essay competition with us here at Project 6633 through uh, MWI, and and tell us is is this really about crowdsourcing and trying to get some ideas out there to help you help you close these capabilities? gaps or is there something else that you're looking for to, to engage the community of, of interested uh, in innovative innovative writers yeah so that's really the part there is trying to get the community of interest so you know quite a few years ago I, I did a climb on uh, Denali up in Alaska and so the the stressors of being on the mountain you know working in that environment for three weeks straight you know as you, you hit on you really start to get at uh, you start to experience that. And what I also noticed while on that trip was that there was a lot of other folks who were thinking about these same problems, not just military folks. Uh, and so there was uh, individuals thinking about how do we make sure that we've got the right nutrition? How do we deal with the psychological stress and strain of, you know, the darkness, the extreme cold weather, you know, the difficulty sleeping. And so as we looked at, you know, the challenges that you know, Barrett was hitting there, uh, the question came is, okay, well, who else is interested in this and how do we tap into those and how do we make it a collaborative effort? Because it's not exclusive to, to us. And so that's why I think that expanding the community of interest, as you said, is, is very good. And I think that the partnership is going to be helpful with this one. Yeah, we're excited. And for anybody that's listening that, that might be thinking about submitting to this essay competition, we welcome your submissions. We welcome your ideas. And this is, again, you're hearing some of the conversation that we're having with these gentlemen uh, about some of the challenges that we all collectively as a, as a DOD, as a military force face when we're thinking about operating in these environments. And again, not to say that we should, but in the event that, that we get the call and that we have to go up there and whether it's a, a combat operation or even just some sort of a presence operation. 
All right, so uh, Colonel Rowan, I want to get back to you on something you just said with regard to the, the difficulties in training and some of the psychological aspects with operating in extreme cold weather environments. So we know that, that it's cold, we know that it can be seasonally dark, and we know that there's a lot of limiting factors in the environment. And we know that in the Marine Corps, we like to say, and I'm sure you guys have in the Special Forces Group, you've, uh, you've said it as well, but there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad gear, right? So we can, we can try to prep as well as, as we possibly can and get out there. Uh, and keep ourselves warm to the extent possible. And, and that gear can can mitigate some stressors, right? It absolutely can. It can pre- it can certainly prevent you from um, from succumbing to some of the elements. At the same time, though, the, the psychological aspect of doing these sustained operations that there's a lot of folks out there, frankly, that I like to say just are pontificating from the climate-controlled comfort of their offices that have never experienced these extreme colds, and they say that we simply won't do it and we can't do it. What do you say to that with regard to either the equipment aspect or the psychological aspect? And then beyond that, the second element of that question is not only what do you say to it, but what are you doing to prepare for these operations? And if you can talk to some of the, uh, the current uh, events that you have going on. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, the, uh, the challenges of the environment, you know, as you mentioned, the psychological pieces, uh, the equipping are, are definitely there. And that's where I think special operations and special forces in particular is well suited to, to get after that. Uh, you know, everybody who's uh, you know, wearing the Green Beret has been specially assessed, selected and trained uh, to withstand both the physical rigors and the psychological challenges of that type of environment. So if there's anybody who's really geared to, to work in this type of environment, uh, it's us. And then likewise, as we seek to get the right kind of equipment and you know, do the training, uh, being able to leverage both uh, Army funds and, you know, quite frankly, our SOCOM funds, you know, it allows us to really get after those missions in a much more focused way. And so, so as we look at, okay, hey, what we think we want to do, the question then becomes is how do we focus our efforts? And so you know, guys like Barrett, uh, when they've gone up to do training in the high north or when guys have gone up to Alaska, they've got a lot of great ideas and they learn a lot of important lessons. And so the question became how do we incorporate those into our plan for future training, for future equipping uh, to get the right stuff. And the mechanism by which we're choosing to do that is what we call Trojan Sentinel. Trojan Sentinel is a focused approach for bottom-up innovation in a couple of key areas like the Arctic, uh, where when our ODAs go out and do these things, they come back, they sit down with our lessons learned folks, you know, our folks who work the procurement of equipment, and they provide their experience and their insights as to, hey, don't buy this, do get that. And so it allows us to you know, really be more focused in uh, developing our comprehensive readiness across all things, material solutions, facilities, uh, and doctrine. You know, how are we going to actually fight? What are we going to actually do in the North if we're called to go up there? Okay. So, Captain Martin, if uh, to extend on what Colonel Rowan just talked about with regard to Trojan Sentinel and, and identifying these capabilities gaps and looking for better equipment and, and so forth to obviously alleviate some of those psychological aspects that uh, you both have, have spoken about, what do you see, based on your experience from having recently operated in extreme cold weather and in, in high latitudes, what do you see as the, as the principal challenges moving forward to sustaining and to engaging in broader cold weather operations? So beyond just the ODA element, beyond the smaller special forces uh, units that are going out there, if we were to send larger units up there for sustained operations, what are some of the biggest challenges that we should all be thinking about and we should be aware of? So I think one of the big ones is how do we continue to learn as an organization versus learning as individuals? I think historically that's been something that's been a problem throughout the military at large, and that is what Trojan Sentinel is really getting at, is how do we as an organization 
learn from our past and innovate for our future. Uh, because one of our big problems that we have, like every other military unit, is we operate based off of trained personnel and validated units. But we have a high turnover rate within the ODAs, within the people going up there and experiencing that. So my team that went up there last year, for instance, of those 12 of us that were validated in the high north as an Arctic team, there's only five that went back this year because of the high turnover rate on the team. So kind of how do you have that continuity as a learning organization so that those five go in with a higher baseline than the original 12, if that makes sense. Uh, and then the other thing is just continued emphasis on this. If this truly is a priority for the Department of Defense and for special operations, then this is something that we continually need to engage in and we have to have ODAs operating in that environment 365 days a year. Because I think one thing that most people fail to realize is when they talk about the Arctic, everyone's mind goes to sub-zero temperatures, snowy terrain, things like that. The summer in the Arctic is just as challenging as the winter in the Arctic but for totally different reasons. Uh, and so that's why I think it's important. We have to keep persistent presence there by, with, and through our partner force and continue to do it in a way in which we are validating individuals and units uh, to operate there. And I think that is key is we have to validate our ODAs and our companies to be able to operate in that environment to continue the priority. So I, I realize that most of our listeners, or at least a, a large portion of our listeners, will understand the reference to ODA, and they'll understand the basics of special forces organizational culture and, and unit orgs and so forth. But Colonel Ryan, can you give us a 30-second a breakdown of, of ODAs and the size elements that we're talking about for the listeners that might be unfamiliar with our with the terminology that we're using? If you could just tell us kind of what the what the captain was just referring to and, and what some of these units are and what they do. Yeah, our, our ODAs are 12-person teams. Uh, led by a captain with a master sergeant as the uh, senior NCO. Uh, they've got a warrant officer as a 2IC, and then a number of specialties uh, from weapons to engineering, uh, communications, medical, and then intelligence uh, NCO. And, and together, those 12 persons go forward and work with partner forces uh, in order to uh, conduct their operations. So we're not you know, doing little 12-person teams like individual raids as we can do that, but that's not primarily what we do. They primarily buy with and through. Can I'm sorry to cut you off there, Colonel. Can an operational detachment alpha? Can it be? Can it be tailored? Can it be? So you talk about all the the organizational elements that are that are uh, organic to an ODA. Can it be tailored to a specific mission? Can it be tailored to, for instance, an Arctic mission or a CENTCOM mission for the for the listeners that are unfamiliar? Yeah. So some of our teams do have specialty infiltration uh, methods. So. Uh, everything from military free fall to scuba. Uh, here in 10th Group, we do have some uh, motorized over snow transport most capability where we have the snow machines and we actually have teams that are trained on both high north or Arctic conditions and mountain warfare and uh, mountain capability. So we do have some of that tailored and that specialized capability in the group. On that note, what have you gentlemen noticed by way of operational challenges? Again, to go back to that phrase, capabilities gaps between a, an ODA that might be oriented toward a CENTCOM operational AOR, excuse me, uh, or uh, versus a uh, an ODA that's oriented toward a, a cold weather environment. What are what have been some of the challenges fundamentally that you've you've dealt with in trying to best equip and train even um, some of these folks that are oriented north? Yeah, so it's interesting because you know while um, we have some teams that are exclusively fo focused on the military free fall or the scuba. Uh, we do rotate different teams through uh, the high north or the Arctic type you know, piece, kind of like what Barrett you know, experienced with his detachment. Uh, but we don't have um, an exclusive um, 
and limited capability. We've got to you know, continuously source a number of missions, and so folks kind of rotate through this. And so as Barrett highlighted, uh, what we're trying to do is consistently expose folks to these requirements, you know, provide them with uh, the training, uh, and then build an overall capability across the group, but not you know just one specific element that's only doing this, and that's all they're there for. So, Captain Martin, if you could talk to us a little more about you talked about uh, in a previous response, you said that you were you were certified or that you had uh, gained some sort of certification to operate in an Arctic environment. What did that What did that look like? So, as far as the validation, that was something that didn't come so much from um, Ten Special Forces Group that came from our necessity to participate in Exercise Cold Response. It's a Norwegian sponsored um, joint multinational exercise that takes place every other year. And part of their requirements is you have to have some sort of validation that gives you credibility to go and participate in this exercise without being a liability to the exercise itself or to your partner force. And currently we did not have that uh, within my battalion. So my team went to Sweden to their subarctic warfare training center. They have this six week program of instruction that counts as their basic and advanced winter warfare instruction and if you graduate from the six weeks of that <clears throat> the norwegian special operations recognizes that as your validation to be able to participate in any uh, scandinavian joint exercise so that was really the baseline requirement for us to be able to participate in exercise nor um, cold response okay. so what were some of the challenges that you personally experienced so uh, humanize yourself a little bit so you're a special forces operator but uh, i'm sure you you dealt with some some challenges of your own absolutely and like i said we my team specifically came off of two back-to-back -back trips to afghanistan so we were kind of uh you know very comfortable with that because afghanistan again we own it and you just kind of hop on the train and don't fall off uh, but when you go to the high north there it's like it, it was almost like we were the first ODA that had ever been there. Uh, even logistically, trying to deploy there is much harder than going somewhere where we've been operating for 20 years. And then once you get there, it was a very um, humbling experience as far as we are used to being the experts and we are used to being the ones that are training foreign internal defense and training our partner forces to become proficient to a certain level. And that role got reversed as soon as we got there. Uh, they are all professional level skiers, snowmobilers, and their individual soldier discipline is unmatched in an Arctic environment because they grew up in that area and they do uh, all the basics to a precise degree and they take it very seriously. So for us to go there, it was like we reversed the role and now we're the Afghans. We're the ones that some of the guys on my team had never been on skis. Some of us hadn't snowmobiled and now we're going by, with, and through them and, and having to be very humble so that Number one, we're not a liability to them. And number two, they see us as an asset to continue to invite us back because they do want us to continue to be there and to get better. So I think, you know, as far as humanizing myself, it, it was a very humbling experience. And, and I ski almost every weekend as a hobby and still nowhere near at their level. Um, so I think that was very eye-opening. And then as Colonel Round previously mentioned with the psychological effects, everything in the Arctic is hard. not just harder, it takes longer. And in our planning, we were not in that mindset. We were thinking that we could move 10 kilometers in X amount of time and we almost would have to triple our time because you have to be so much more deliberate. Uh, complacency kills there. Individual soldier discipline is everything. Uh, and then, you know, going back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like if you're freezing, nothing else matters. If you are so cold that you are nervous about how cold you are, you're not pulling great security. You're not thinking, you know, what's going on beyond your little 
foxhole, so to speak. Um, and then just the limited hours of visibility, again, really caused a lot of psychological strain in the fact that um, you are always operating in even more of a challenging environment because your night vision goggles, they might work for a couple seconds there until you exhale and then they freeze up from the condensation of your breath. So it's like every little thing that just makes it harder and harder just kind of continues to eat away at everything you've known and done and that has worked in the past. It's fascinating, right? Again, for our listeners who really haven't experienced these things, it, it is just fascinating to think about the just trying to engage in military operations that in other environments, again, not to say anything is easy, but for special forces folks that have that have trained and, and do this stuff as a, a matter of muscle memory, and then you add that element of extreme cold and, and the, the challenges that, it, that that injects both physically and psychologically, it's uh, it's really tremendous to think about some of the, the operations difficulties and limitations. So, Colonel Rowan, back to you on that point. What what do we need to do better? What do you think we, and not to not to indict the group or anything, but to, you know, just to have a conversation and to get our listeners a better thinking about the context of operating in extreme cold, uh, you guys are some of the best of the best, right? You you, you have the expertise, you have the, the training, you are certainly geared and, and oriented toward this AOR. What do you think we need to do better if we want to try to move across this training readiness and, and presence continuum? What are, what do we need to do better? So I, I really liked what Barrett said earlier with the, you know, we have to be humble uh, because there's a lot of things for us to, um, in some ways, relearn, but really just to learn. You know, we've, we've really conditioned a whole generation of our soldiers, you know, on how to fight in Afghanistan, how to fight in Iraq, uh, those kind of, you know, operations, uh, rather than large-scale combat operations against, uh, or potential operations against a near-peer and in an extreme environment like this. And so humbling ourselves to figure out what is it that we need to learn, what is it that we need to consider and think about. Uh, and again, I guess that brings us back to you know, why I think that this essay competition is so so valuable. Um, you know, those insights that are out there that you know, people who have been watching us you know, focus on something else for years can tell us where we need to think uh, and where we need to go. Uh, in terms of you know really improving our capability, and it's not just to to fight in the Arctic. It's not just to you know go up there to you know hey some futuristic war. It's really hey there's going to be training. There's going to be opportunities to engage up in there. There's going to be opportunities to do uh, like with uh, Barrett said with cold response where hey we're just working with partners, uh, we're strengthening allies and relationships, uh, and to do that we've got to be competent and capable to operate in the north. And so so it's not just how do we you know fight, but how do we you know operate and you know, be a good partner where we're not as Barrett said liability as far as what we need to do about it and what we should do about it i think we're doing it right now you know like i think this podcast is a testament to our efforts to continue this and i've heard colonel round say it time and again we fund our priorities right the arctic has become a priority and now we put our money where our mouth is we fund it through manning training and equipping and ensuring that our forces are ready to go operate there whether anything happens there or not there is undoubtedly global power competition in the Arctic, and we have to be ready. We owe it to the American public and to the military to be able to be the action arm for that. Yeah. Extraordinarily well said, both of you. And it's on that note, as we kind of near the end of this conversation, I just want to get back to this idea about operating in the polar regions. And we've we've talked about training. We've talked about the fact that we are oriented that way, that we're now we're seeing it in, in our policy language, that the Arctic is becoming more of a, a relevant topic. 
what what have you all heard? And not to extend into a into a uh, conversation that we can't get into, but what have you all heard by way of the water cooler conversations about the Arctic and, and its position or its relevance in your future orientation? I know that that sounds redundant, probably to some of our listeners, but we're looking now we're looking now maybe five ten years ahead. What, what what's your prediction? What do you think we'll we'll be doing in five or ten years? So I think that the the economic importance of the Arctic is growing. You know, as the uh, the ice caps there melt and the waterways open up, uh, there's increased traffic through there. And so you've got the Arctic Council that's focused on that. You've got China now as an observer there. And so you've got all these um, key nations bumping into one another up there. And so I think that it's going to you know, become an increasingly uh, important region. Um, it's different than, I think, you know, the Antarctic region. You, know, you just don't have that same confluence of NATO partners and, you know, uh, transit, you know, routes for all the, the shipping. Uh, and so I think that we're going to see a lot of focus remain in the high north, uh, up in the, the Arctic. So, Captain Martin, tell me, so Colonel Rowan talked about what he thinks the big picture strategic lens might look like and our focus by way of, of U.S. policy and orientation. What do you think you specifically will be doing in 10 years if you're still part of the the uh, Special Forces group? And, and what do you think your role will be maybe as a future Lieutenant Colonel Martin? So first of all, absolutely. My goal would be to come back here uh, as a major and then again as a Lieutenant Colonel. And what I would like to see is a progression. I don't want to come back here in a few years and see that we're still struggling with the same uh, man train equip acquisition challenges, still at the same base level of you know blocking and tackling, so to speak, in the Arctic that we currently are trying to achieve. Uh, I want to see that this is really taken off. Trojan Sentinel is still a thing, and that we not only have better trained and equipped teams and companies, um, but that we actually have stronger partner relations within the Arctic and more enduring exercises and things like that that are happening. Um, and I think for all the listeners out there, if you want another resource to kind of go into not just what Colonel Rowan said with the bigger picture, but also some of the struggles just in kind of transitioning from GWAT to uh, more of a near peer challenge with technology gaps, acquisition challenges, I encourage you to uh, read or listen to the book Kill Chain by Christian Bros. Just finished it and it is 100% relevant to what we're talking about right now and I think uh, going to be very important in the next five to 10 years. All right, gentlemen, this has been a great conversation. Really, again, appreciate the time and uh, the knowledge that you're sharing with us today. And hopefully our listeners are, uh, are, are just getting a better sense of just how, how uh, immensely challenging this operational environment is. But also the fact that we as a U.S. military are willing and, and capable and able to operate in these conditions. So uh, with that, as we wrap it up here, uh, Colonel Rowan, anything that uh, we have not discussed that, that you'd like to use this opportunity to, to bring into the conversation and, uh, and close it out? So, you know, we've talked a lot about the ODAs and you know, how they've gone forward and done exercises like cold response and work with our partners. Uh, and, and realistically, I think as we talk about any of the NDS threats and how we're going to counter Russia, uh, it's not going to just be an SFODA. It's not just going to be us with a partner. It's going to be a joint uh, fight that's going to involve partners and allies. And so the, the question that we've got you know, as we look forward is, hey, where are the venues and how do we come together to, to truly build a capability to some degree of capacity uh, that's, that's comprehensive? Uh, that involves you know space-based capabilities that looks at you know all the EW aspects that really just kind of brings it all together uh, like our training centers do how do we do something like that for the Arctic and and maybe that's you know a bridge too far maybe that's beyond you know the ability for us to, to develop uh, but we recognize that while soft you know is uniquely 
uh, man trained and equipped to do some of these operations, we're not going to do it alone. And so make sure that we've got those venues, I think, would be something to for, for us to look forward to and think about how we might address. Captain Martin, any, any final points that you'd like uh, everybody to hear? I think we'd just like to point out that this isn't a finished product by any means. This is something that we are just now uh, breaching into. We've got an Arctic Warfare Working Group, uh, currently a group, and then every single battalion and company is working on different innovation lines of effort within Trojan Sentinel. And really, I think this is the start uh, of something that must be continued into the future. So by no means do I want the listeners to think that we've got it figured out or these are the answers. This is just to gain some buy-in and awareness to what we are doing about an emerging problem or emerging capability gap and future threat. All right. Well, gentlemen, we, uh, we're going to go ahead and conclude this podcast here. I want to thank you sincerely for your time and sharing your knowledge with us today. I'm hoping that our listeners are listening to this and, and getting a better sense of, uh, again, just the challenges and the limitations, but also the interest that the United States has and the willingness the United States has to, to operate in these environments and the fact that we've got elite folks like you that are out there leading the charge. And uh, again, we, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your, your interest. So, uh, Captain, or excuse me, uh, Colonel Brian Rowan and uh, Captain Barrett Martin. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you, sir. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thank you.